as well, did we? Up here, here is love. Mate, what a good, listen to this, listen to this. I know you sung it, but we're going to, it's mind-blowing. Last, last verse. Here is love, <coughs> vast as the heavens, countless as the stars above, are the souls that he has ransomed, precious daughters, treasured sons. We are called to feast forever on a love beyond our time. Glorious Father, Son, and Spirit, now with man are intertwined. Goodness me, that is who we're meeting with right now as we come under the authority of God's word. As God's people, we are meeting with Father, Son, and Spirit forevermore with us intertwined in the most glorious, mysterious, mind-blowing, infinite love and communion that there can be. I'm just going to pray again because I want us to be in the, in the mindset of loving Jesus Christ and the gospel and being appreciative of that. And then we're going to open up to Revelation chapter 2. Father God, we are so thankful. We are so humbled and blown away by the, the glorious things that have been penned in, in this hymn, which have been taken out of what have been penned in the scripture, that you would, in your mysterious, marvelous, eternal, unfathomable love, choose in your own sovereignty with nothing forcing you, uh, with nothing twisting your arm, with nothing causing you to do anything outside of your own free will and act of love, you chose to love us by joining us to yourself for all of eternity, by forgiving us of all of our sins, by, by bringing us to yourself in reconciliation through the blood of your Son, and by filling us with the Spirit to know you and commune with you. We pray, Lord God, that as we gather, we would be, we would be more, more conversant of that than our weak. We would be more aware of that, that reality, that true, that meta-reality, the, the, the thing that is truer than any other thing, that we would be more aware of that than our sins that we would be more aware of the grace of Jesus than the accusations of our enemy, that we would be more aware of your strength than our weakness. And Lord God, that we would be, be humbled with open hearts to hear what you would have to say tonight through your word, because you love us and you speak to us by it. In the name of Jesus, who loves us and gave himself for us, we pray and everybody said, amen. We'll open up to Revelation chapter 2, everybody. If you're visiting, I'm really glad you're here. I hope to get to meet you afterwards. Um, uh, please don't be at all nervous or standoffish. I would love to meet you. Or if you've been here a while, and there's some of you, there's some of you who've been here a while and you have great friends and you've chatted with the other elders and I haven't had the pleasure yet. So please come and speak to me afterwards. We don't have Q&A, so plenty of time to chat and uh, um, I would really like to have the conversation. Uh, if you're looking for a church, we're really glad that you're here um, uh, and that you can uh, check us out a bit. We're, we're Bible preaching, Bible loving people here and we just go through books of the Bible. Sometimes we take short portions of books of the Bible like we're doing in Revelation right here. I just don't have it in me. Um, I've had a couple of surgeries going on. I had another one on Friday, so I'm, I've got one more sermon again tonight where I can just, I can say whatever I want and claim it's all on the pain drugs. Uh, so this tonight is going to be fun. But, but with all of that going on, all the opioids, I couldn't do the whole of Revelation. Can you imagine that? We'd, um, we'd be going crazy. And we would be here till it's all fulfilled and Jesus comes back. I just can't rush through that book. So I'll do the book. I promise at some point as far as my ability in the future. But right now, we're just doing the letters that Jesus penned through uh, John to the churches. And we found ourselves now in uh, uh, reading the letter to the church in Thyatira. This will be found in Revelation chapter 2, verse 18 and onwards. This is the longest letter, and it is extremely interesting. So buckle up. The Word of God reads like this. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write... The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and your faith, and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works 
exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast that which you have until I come, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him. I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, as even I myself have received authority from my father. And I will receive him, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. This is a this is a this is an amazing. This is a colorful. This is a this is a favorite letter of mine. In fact, if I if I'm being honest, that, that Jesus pens to his church this letter to to Thyatira. We're going to see in the first opening opening uh, uh, verses and words as Jesus introduces himself. We're going to see the same principle in every letter. Jesus introduces himself in a way that is theologically and situationally significant and relevant to the church that he's writing to. So to the church who was, who was fading in their bright radiance and their proclamation, Ephesus, he says, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands, and I'll remove your lampstand if I want to. Today, to the people who need to be reminded of Christ's royal godly rule and to be reminded of his x-ray sharp vision and his feet which are made for trampling, to them he calls himself the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. One of the themes in the Bible is this, is this thread that plays through many, many stories, which is kind of the story underneath the stories, which is the seed of the woman Eve against her enemies, the seed of the serpent. Now, you remember that in Genesis 3 when God says to the serpent, the, the, seed of the, woman, uh, uh, the seed of the woman and your seed, there will be enmity between them. God put that enmity between righteousness and unrighteousness. And he said, but the seed of the woman will come and crush your head. You'll bruise his leg, but you, he'll crush your head. He's going to win. And so starting from Genesis 3 all the way through, you see these, these different versions of the same story playing out, the righteous children versus the children of the serpent, the unrighteous children. Uh, you see it in the very next generation, right? The Abel, the righteous son, is killed by Cain, the unrighteous son. You see it play out in Noah's generation. Noah, the righteous one, is persecuted and, and mocked by the unrighteous generation. You see it as the Jews are taken into slavery. The, the righteous generation are being persecuted and enslaved for 10 generations by the uh, unrighteous generation. You see the the, 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 the kings in the, uh, in, the, in the book is 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You see the, the kings, the righteous people, the righteous remnant, and then the unrighteous kings, the unrighteous people, the unrighteous nation. We see it even come up in the book of Revelation a whole lot. 
the pure bride of Christ, which is the church, versus the great harlot and whore, which is the covenant breakers, abusing, assaulting the church. You see uh, the great dragon versing the children of the virgin. That would be the righteous people. But if we go back into the Old Testament again, I sort of skim through. If we go back to the Old Testament, one of the ways we see this, this story manifest is that we see kings or the, the line of David, the line of King David versus Jezebel. That's one of the ways we see this righteous seed, unrighteous seed, Eve's seed, Satan's seed come to fruition. And David's children were, you know, if we go to um, uh, uh, Second Samuel, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for us. But, but when we see this language in Revelation, Jesus is on the scene and he says, I'm the one who is the son of God. Now, now our immediate theological line that we draw is we say, yeah, he's proving his divinity because he's the son of God. He's the, he's the second person of the Godhead, God the son. That's not what he's saying. It is absolutely true. He is God. He is divine. He'll use divine language later on and apply it to himself in this very letter that, that the Old Testament uses for God. Yes, Jesus is God. That's not what he means here. He's pulling from both 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, which is language that God uses to say, I'm setting up a king, and that king is going to be like a son to me. So in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, and then in 14, God is speaking to David and saying, thanks for trying to build me a temple. I'm right. I'll do that myself. Your son will do it. But also, here is my promise and my covenant to you, David. I'll build you a house. I'll build you a generational uh, kingdom where your children, your sons, will sit on the kingdom of Israel. And then there will be one that comes who will have an eternal kingdom. They will be like sons to me, and I will be like a father to them. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 14, God uses this language. This is the Davidic covenant. It says, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then in Psalm 2, a little bit later, you see that what is written down is a prophecy about the future king, which is Jesus, little clue, but it is also true of David in the moment that it's being written, which is that God is saying of the king, I'm like a father to him. He's like a son. We might get a little bit uncomfortable with that because we don't like the fact that God would call human kings sons of God, but he does. In fact, Jesus will even point out that in the Old Testament, God calls kings gods, small g. Remember? So, so, so God looks at kings who mediate his righteousness and his reign and, and his rule over his kingdom. And he says, they're like me. They're mediating what I do. They're, they're my puppets. They're my servants. And so he calls them his son. Well, Psalm 2, verse 7, Jesus, the, the future Messiah, is pictured as saying, as he was given the throne, the Lord said to me, you are my son. So God says to Jesus, in his role as king, not in his role as eternal God, but in his role as king over God's kingdom, he says, you are my son. In other words, the descendant of David who would rule as king would be known as God's son, a human known as God's son. So in Jesus' introduction here starts with, I know we're only a few words in, but we love the word of God, right? We like it and under it, in it, searching it through. When Jesus calls himself the son of God, what he's saying is, I am the true, promised, perfect, eternal son of David who inherits all of those glorious promises. And my kingdom will have no end. 
No one pushes me off of this throne. That's what he's saying. But he goes further. He says that he has eyes like fire. This is symbolizing the fact, now we're going to find out in Thyatira, they've got issues going on under the surface. People are calling themselves things that they are not. People are thinking things are okay and it is not. And Jesus is saying, my eyes are like fire. I can see what is going on and I x-ray. I see underneath what is professed. Jesus has the eyes of judgment. Some of you are unconverted. You are still in your sin. You do not obey Jesus. You do not love Jesus. You do not have faith in his atonement for you. You have not repented and turned to Christ. Maybe you've thought about it. Maybe you've felt compelled, but you've held back. Maybe you despise the idea. The Bible's testimony would be that every single one of you have a similar trait. All of us have had this trait. All of us still have this little niggling trait to to tend to do this, and that is this, that you think you can hide your sin. Or if you can't hide your sin, you can at least hide from Jesus and live in your sin. This picture of Jesus having the eyes of fire is for you. You cannot run somewhere where the gaze of Jesus does not see you and see you utterly naked, dressed only in your sin. He sees every bit of it. The only way to run away from judgment, the only way to run away from damnation is to run to the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ who can clothe you, cleanse you, forgive you. He has eyes of fire. You cannot run away tonight. Come to Jesus. But we'll keep on going. He has the eyes like fire, and he has feet like burnished bronze. Now, both of these themes are picked up later on in the book of Revelation in a scene of judgment. So that, that's why I know when he's saying, I have the eyes of fire, he's talking judgment language. That's how he's opening the door to Thyatira. I'm here as judge to deal with sin. That's because in Revelation chapter 19, 11 and 12, John says, then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. I believe this is Jesus riding on this great white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Okay, so this is the scene Jesus is setting up. Not Song of Solomon's loving and flirting with his bride in the garden. I'm on a horse. I've got eyes of fire. I'm here to judge. And then the feet, of course, He says, I have feet of burnished bronze. And this is also from the white horse scene. In verse 15 of chapter 19, John says, He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Why does he have such such solidified, pure, brass, bronze, strong feet? It's so that he can stomp all the heads of his enemies. That's why. So this is judgment language. This is how Thyatira opens up their nice little letter. They like the one to Smyrna. It was nice because they were suffering. We're suffering too. Let's see what it said. Well, this is confronting to Thyatira. That Jesus is saying, I'm the true promised king from the line of David. Me, not Caesar, is king over the world. Caesar called himself the son of God because he thought he was the God man. No, Jesus is the true God man. His eyes see all sin and all past lies. His feet are ready to tread out the enemies of God in wrath. And the king has come to judge the church in Thyatira. This is, this is to teach us that even if we have some good things going on in a church, we have never enough going on that is good to excuse heresy, sexual morality, and sin. There's never enough that you can put on the we're doing good side that Jesus will say, all good, I'll tolerate sin. He will always press for purity in your individual life. Do not do it. Don't don't try and leverage some wiggle room because you've got a great evangelism life, though you're looking at pornography. 
You, you gossip a little bit, but you serve a lot. So everybody knows you are mature, though you rat about, it, about everybody behind their back. I complain a lot. I have bitterness, but I, I, I read a lot. I know a lot. People look up to me. Never do we tolerate that. Look at Jesus' commendation in verse 19. This is what they're doing well. He says, I know your works, your love, your faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. The things they're doing, which seem pretty much across the board, all the things that you could be doing well in, they, are, they seem to be doing well in. Their works, their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance, they're doing them all well. And unlike Ephesus, who is a reminder that we can all start well, that's one thing, but continuing well is a whole other thing. That's what Ephesus taught us. They were, they were trending down. Yet Thyatira teaches us that it is not the normative, usual expectation that we all do that. That we all have our first love and then crumble. I, we always share the gospel and seek a great proclamation and then crumble. No, Thyatira's example is their works, their love, their patience, their service expanded, extended, was growing, he says, and your latter works exceed the first. They're not just on par. Do not aim to die on par. You know, I got saved, grew a little, and I never dropped below that again for 50 years. No, friends, always seek, as Paul would say, to be sanctified in your whole body, spirit, soul, mind, everything. We, the standard given to us, the command given to us is an infinite command. You're never doing good enough at it. We can never fully fulfill love the Lord your God and your neighbor with all your mind, your soul, your strength. We can never do that. So we're striving always for increasing, increasing works and service. Jesus does not look, overlook righteousness. This is so encouraging. Jesus does not overlook righteousness. Now, no amens or putting your hands up if you're in this church, but if you're in a terrible church, tolerating sin, right? No amens, no here. We don't know what this is like. Maybe you're a visitor. Maybe you can count, but don't amen it. If you're in a terrible church, tolerating sin, preaching is not what it ought to be, church discipline is non-existent, leadership is not what it ought to be, as we'll see soon, even there, we don't brush with broad strokes and make claims like there's not a single regenerate person there. That's a totally unsaved church, things like that. Or if you're there, you need to recognize that even amidst faithlessness, Jesus sees with his blazing eyes and x-ray vision, faithfulness. The other people might throw you in the one lot. You're all going down. It's terrible. Where you're being faithful to Jesus Christ, not for the sake of division, but for the sake of faithfulness, Jesus sees it and commends it. This is extremely encouraging because they're in a bad way. This church is in a bad way. Jesus still finds a way to encourage them and see and notice where things are genuinely going well, and he does so. But then we, we start seeing what Jesus sees with his blazing eyes. So look at verse 20 and 21. This is what Jesus sees with his blazing eyes as he looks at the church of Thyatira. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. What it seems like there is is that there's a, there's a female pastor, oxymoron, I know, but there's a female pastor in the first century in Thyatira that is being tolerated and she is being allowed to promote a teaching among the church that the elders did not agree with. 
that the apostles did not agree with. A new teaching that allowed a little bit of flexibility in terms of which temples were allowed to worship in and which pagan feasts were allowed to partake in and which people were allowed to sleep with. She had a little bit of, a, of one of those really convenient fresh revelations. And would you believe it? All the 17 to 30-year-old guys believed her teaching. Wasn't that crazy? The pretty false prophetess who said you can have sex with whoever you want and all the guys start believing her. Funny how that always works out, isn't it? So, so this woman is in the church. She's being tolerant, and this is the problem. It's not that she exists. It's that she's in the church. <clears throat> the sin of the woman is twofold. First, it is that she is teaching at all. Secondly, that she is falsely leading Christians into this false practice. But the sin of the church is that she's tolerating Jezebel. The sin of the church is an open-minded toleration because, you know, no church wants to divide over these matters. The church may not be doing the sin, but if we tolerate the sin, we have the sin of toleration, and Jesus despises it. And so his eyes see through what she claimed to be. We see that she claimed to be a prophetess. She was sent from God. She had the vision. She had the new revelation. She had the, the little footnotes to put on the sexual ethic. She had the little footnotes to put on God's law. Obviously, always, this, this always happens so conveniently. She's a, she calls herself... No, I don't think she calls herself Jezebel. That's just not how you win friends in a Christian church. You, you don't say, just as, as also later, Jesus says that some say she teaches the deep things of Satan. She didn't say that. That's not, that's not a good sell. I'm Jezebel, and I teach the deep things of Satan. You want in? Uh, that's not what was going on. Also, she was probably Jewish. No Jewish mom names their kid Jezebel unless the childbirth was terrible. But I doubt it even then. So likely, this is Jesus with some smack talk, saying, this woman, Jezebel, this whore harlot from the Old Testament, coming against my people, leading them into sin, she's going down. He calls her Jezebel after the Old Testament, uh, pagan, evil liar, whore. In the Old Testament, you, you can find this in 1 Kings 16 through 21, pops up again in 2 Kings. She was, uh, she was basically, if you remember last week when we spoke about Balaam, the false prophet that taught the people to sin and worship false idols, she's pretty much a female version, more seductive version of Balaam. And she came later. She came once David's sons had started to rule. And she was born to a pagan king. She was the daughter and a princess of a pagan king. She was a, a, a Baal worshiper. And a man came to the throne in Israel who was not a son of David. He shouldn't have been on the throne. He was not a son of David. He was a son of Omri. He came to the throne. Ahab, you know your Old Testament, you know Ahab's a bad name. King Ahab was married to Jezebel. And she brought into Ahab's realm of uh, possibility adulterous, fornicating, sexual, immoral worship to false gods. We're told that she taught him to worship Baal. Along with him, she taught the nation to worship Baal. We're told that Ahab did more to anger God. This is impressive if it wasn't so sinful. He did more to anger God than all of the kings before him. That's a huge claim when you've got kings burning babies and sacrificing them to Old Testament gods. We're told in 1 Kings 21 verse 25, his wife is the one who incited him to so much evil, seduced him to so much evil. Doesn't get him off the hook. He's an idiot, but he was doing it at the leadership of his seductive pagan wife. 
She herself lied and schemed and manipulated her, her husband's power to have righteous men killed to take their riches. Ahab was then killed in battle after he was seeking the advice of false prophets. God says, don't go. He says, where are my false prophets at? I like what they say. He listens to them. He goes out and a random bow is just plucked and an arrow floats through the air. And as he turns around, it catches him in between the breastplate and the shoulder point, the one weak point on his armor. He sits down, bleeds, and is taken back dead to the city of his fathers. This woman Jezebel is a bad character. Now, here's how it's looking in the New Testament. This woman has, first of all, made herself a teacher in God's house. You won't believe this, but there are people who are so flexible with their biblical interpretation that they can come away from reading the Old and New Testament and believe that God doesn't mind which gender preaches the Bible in his church. You're not going to believe it. It'd be as believable as me telling you that a blind guy is uh, the world's best uh, race car navigator uh, uh, in, the, in the side. You won't believe it. You wouldn't believe it, but it happens. People actually read the same Bible we read and come away from it thinking, I think women can be pastors as much as men. I hope that's not you. I hope you're not, uh, not at all surprised by that, but it happens. Not here. Never here, but it happens. We know that this is... Uh, a sin, something that the church leaders should have been pushing against because in 1 Timothy 2, remember, Paul wrote the letter of 1 and 2 Timothy to Timothy who is in Ephesus and really from Ephesus that letter would have gone across the whole uh, the, the similar churches that we're reading in this in, in Revelation because it, uh, Thyatira was planted while Paul was ministering in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Sorry, we're in, yeah, we're in Thyatira. They would have received Timothy's authoritative demands, which Paul passed to him, which said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. Now, this is in the household of God. You don't co-pastor, sub-pastor, associate pastor, elder but not technically pastor, females. That is to bring them into sin. That is to them tempt them with the sin of Jezebel. That is for the men to sin in their roles. Paul made it so extremely clear. Now, some people say, I think that we can have a church which has female elders, female pastors, female preachers, and, and, and it's not going to compromise. My answer, I'll see you in five years. We'll see if the church exists, because I'm going to put my life savings on the fact that in five years, a hundred other things are down the drain. You don't meddle with leadership. You don't meddle with who preaches the Bible and expect that everything else won't go downhill. But also, by the time you interpretively can reason for yourself that women can preach and females can be pastors, you've also knocked down about 20 or 30 other important biblical principles. I know this isn't you. I'm not angry. I'm not doing that here. But Jesus is fiery as speaking to these people. He's saying to the church, now, some people read that and think there's just one sin. She's false teaching. No, friends. The first is that she calls herself a teacher. And in, a, in Revelation language, a prophet is a teacher. She's calling herself a teacher. Where are the pastors teaching her? She can't be a teacher in God's house, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2. They were being silent. The, the same reason Jezebel was so influential was because her husband was a numbskull, passive beta male. 
Why do women raise up to leadership and preaching? Because the men don't stand on the word of God and are moronic beta males. They can't say, thus saith the Lord, because they'll get hit with, that's pretty rich coming from a male. True. Yeah, that's true. I didn't check, I didn't check my privilege. I will confess to you, I did not check my privilege before I came up to preach this. Paul didn't check his. Here we are, the first sin, she is preaching, teaching in the house of God. When they were explicitly, these churches were explicitly commanded, do not tolerate this, which was so common in their day. Secondly, she was teaching a compromised theology, and we touched on this. She's teaching people that dabbling in the pagan worship in Thyatira and in the area is not sin. She's teaching them that, that eating at, the, at the, the feasts of the gods was not sin. Now, We've already distinguished last week and other weeks that this is different from the, uh, the, the, the non-sinful act of eating meat that used to be sacrificed in an idol and then you got sold at the butcher. Different. He's not talking about conscience issues. He's talking about going and feasting with them in worship to the pagan gods. In Thyatira, they were a city of trade and industry. This is your blue-collar city. And in that city, it was impossible to be a part of some of the, the very influential guilds and, um, and societies, the trade societies, unless you were also a member of some of the, temp- the pagan temples in town. So unless you're a pagan worshiper, you can't be a part of the business guilds. Therefore, you are extremely impoverished of opportunity and economics if you do not go and worship. And so Jezebel was very, very conveniently teaching them. Jesus doesn't mind. We can do these things. Probably she was claiming, I've got the deep things of God. He told me. God came to me in a vision. God spoke to me. I know you have the Bible and the apostles. That's A grades. That's first grade stuff. I've got secondary. I've got high school. I've got tertiary level revelation here. I've got the deep things of God. Friends, in Jesus' language, anybody who has anything more deep than the plain meaning of the Bible is reading Satan's notebook. No codes in the Bible. No no twisting it. No saying this has gone away now and we can do the opposite of what it commands. None of that. They are Satan's prophets. The Bible is our authority that she would try try and throw away. This woman Jezebel was teaching these things. And his eyes are on fire. He sees all of it as it is, and he hates everything he sees. And in his grace, he says, I have given her time to repent. He didn't immediately come, snuff out everybody, send an earthquake, open it up, crush everyone in the church that listened to this woman Jezebel. Big stage light didn't fall on her head the first time she got up to try and preach. None of that. He was gracious. You know what he probably did? He probably got the men, who were the elders, to go and approach her through the normal means of church discipline and say, you ought not preach, you are not called to this, you have not had your hands laid by a biblical leadership to do so, and also you're compromising the purity of the ethics of the Christians. They probably did that. Jesus gave her time to repent. You know what she probably said? No. You know what the men said? Oh, okay. Oh, thanks. Didn't expect that. What do we do? She came out with the old, no thanks, check your privilege. So they've now allowed her to continue. Do you see how unloving it is? In fact, how how hateful it is for a church to not do church discipline. See how much much I would have to despise you to say, pulp, give it a go. Who who wants a pulpit? Who wants to just have a crack, see how you go? Ladies too, you know, we're, we're, we're progressive. Jump on up. Every time a church stands on the word of God and applies its ethics to us with the fear of God in our hearts, we are loving one another well. Because the church did not do that, and it's always better. Some of us think church discipline is the worst thing in the world. No, Jesus' discipline is the worst thing in the world. 
Because they failed to do the church discipline, Jesus now puts on his burnished bronze boots. Look at verse 22 and 23, and this is what he threatens her. Behold, I will throw her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each one of you according to your works. I love that last line. That's him saying, the reason Jesus does church discipline and discipline and punishment is so that everybody in the church and beyond looks on the church and goes, Jesus doesn't punish the righteous along with the pure, uh, along with the unrighteous. He punishes the unrighteous, and the righteous and the faithful receive blessing. He's, he's not just angry, angry king wiping out a whole town because he got annoyed. He finds those who are in sin, who cannot find him. He exposes them and puts them away. That's what, the, that's what we should know. When, when we look at Ananias and Sapphira getting knocked down dead in Acts, we're supposed to think, Jesus sees it, and he, can't, he won't let me get away with this. Whatever it looks like, might get ugly, might let me go on and, and secretly suffer for years, but Jesus is not mocked. I love the language that, that Jesus starts using. Again, it's divine smack talk. He, co- he keeps on using the language of throw, and we'll see, that, see why when we look at the, old, the death of the Old Testament Jezebel. But he keeps on saying, he says, I'll throw her onto a sickbed. This is a play on words. It's as if he's saying, she want a bed? I'll give her a bed. She like lying on her back? I'll lay her on her back. She likes, she likes laying down? Oh, she'll go down. She likes that? She's gone. He's saying he's going to make her sick. Well, whatever this physically looks like, we don't know. But Jesus is coming in judgment, and he's going to punish her to the death. In fact, at this point, he stops giving her time to repent. He just says, I'm coming. I gave you the time. Now I'm not giving you more grace. I'm just giving you punishment. And so he's threatening. He says, and those who commit adultery with her. I would think in the language of Revelation, probably he's not saying, and those men who are sleeping with her. He's probably meaning those men who upon her teaching are committing spiritual adultery against me with her, right? She's teaching them go and worship idols. They're doing it. They're committing adultery along with her. I'm going to come after them. They are those who commit adultery with her, or he also calls them her children, the followers, the disciples who go with her. Just like Jesus calls us in, uh, in, in, the, in the New Testament, the children of God, so also there are children of, of Jezebel, right? You see the, the theme coming back open? the righteous seed, and then the children of the devil. He says he will throw the followers, so he's going to kill her, that's, that's set, but he will throw the followers of her into tribulation. That's revelation language for persecution. They're going to find themselves getting t- persecuted by the very people they're worshipping alongside in the temples, in, in the pagan feasts. They're going to turn on them somehow, and the fact that they thought they could get away with it will come back to bite them, unless they repent of her works. Jesus gives them the grace. He says, you can repent right up until the point that you're dead with Jezebel, and so repent. He says, and I will strike her children dead. Her followers, her disciples would be killed. And then all of the churches will know, all of the churches will know that Jesus is the one who purifies his church. There's a, like I said before, there's this beautiful, I don't know how you define beauty, I think this is beautiful, a beautiful similarity between the death of the Old Testament Jezebel and the threats to kill the New Testament Jezebel. The way that the Old Testament Jezebel dies, maybe you're familiar with it, God anoints in his grace a new king who raises up 
and goes and kills the children of Jezebel who are currently occupying the throne. Jesus says here, I'll kill our children. Old Testament, God raised up a new anointed king who goes and kills her children, takes the throne back. And then he hops on a horse and, and races and finds Jezebel in a big tower with eunuchs, right? Her, her priests kind of thing. The followers, those teachers of, of her theology, of this false prophetess, the king comes up to it and he does what Jesus just did. He said, if anybody of you eunuchs want to reject her, you will be spared. It's, it's what Jesus does. Jesus comes up to Jezebel's tower and says, any of you repent, you won't die, but get out of the way. I'm swinging my foot. And it's just as Jezebel in the New Testament was told, Jesus will throw her, I'll throw you, I'll throw you. The Old Testament Jezebel, at the command of the anointed king, the king says, throw her down. And from her lofty tower, the eunuchs go, that's a better deal than getting killed with her. They grab her, they throw her out of the window, she flies to the ground, splatters, it says, her blood splatters on the wall and on the horses. And the horses, in their fear and in their shock, run around in a fear and trample her to death. She wasn't dead yet. She had fallen, wasn't dead yet, and the, 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 the horses trample her to death. What has Jesus said he is? He's the one coming to judge Jezebel, and he's got feet of burnished bronze. He is the one that Revelation 19 tells us will be treading the winepress of God's wrath. This is an amazingly harrowing threat coming from meek and mild Jesus, isn't it? He cares about the purity of his church. Look at his command. This is what he says to those who have not gone the way of Jezebel. Verse 24 and 25. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I don't lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. He's basically saying, I'm not commanding you to go out and get rid of Jezebel. I'm not commanding you to go out and, and do my punishment. I'm coming. I'm going to do it. But you hold fast to what you do have, which is the church, which is the gospel, which is my teaching. You return to the standards that you learned. You differentiate yourself from Jezebel. Get yourself out of her house. You put her under church discipline. Elders, he would have been saying. Pastors, Get up the very next sermon. There is no excuse if you hop up and preach on anything this Sunday other than the sexual ethic of the Christian and the false prophetess Jezebel. That's what that pastor had to do that Sunday. He's saying, differentiate. Hold fast to what you have, but I'm going to come and do the judgment myself. Today, this, this means that for us, any acceptance that we have of society's sins in the church, and if you don't think there are any in you or the church, they're in you and your church. If you're not aware that they're there, you're blind to them and they're there. We ought to be aware of them and be doing due diligence to put them out. There's no church that exists that doesn't have some of society's sins still in our members, still in our people, still, still, still putrefying the waters. And yet, Jesus in his grace simply says what he said to Thyatira at first, repent. If you repent, there's no judgment. There's no, there's no punishment for that. If you recognize, confess, repent, and turn. But where you seek to hide society's sins, like, like Achan. I just, I just read this in my devotions this week. Like Achan, you know, that guy from the Old Testament, went in with everybody else over the walls of Jericho that had been flattened and, and demolished the city, but kept secretly for himself a few bars of gold and a nice jacket and chucked it under his tent. No one knew 
except he who sees and searches minds and hearts. And at his disobedience, God cursed the nation. Thousands died in the battle. And then he was weeded out in front of the whole nation, and they buried him with stones and burned his things. We ought not think that our secret sin is tolerable, unseen, okay. Jesus has the burning eyes, and Jesus says, if you are defending and accepting, and then if the church knows it and then is tolerating society's evil, our old ways of living in the new way of life that is Christianity, then we are in sin and liable to Christ's judgment. We ought not idealize the church that is soft on sin. Wouldn't it be nice if your elders just just ignored what they know you don't want to talk about? They don't tap you on the shoulder. They don't sit down. They don't consider a secret porn habit. If you're doing everything else right, they don't consider that worthy of not taking communion, of not being able to become a member. They they won't sit you down from that. Your worship leaders should be able to do whatever. And still, as long as they lead worship in an anointed way, right? Let's, Let's not idealize that. That is to have a pastorate that has no problem with poison in your food, with wolves in the midst. But they'll take your money. Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll preach on a tie. They'll, they'll make sure that you give. They won't confess you, confront you individually, corporately on sin. Let's throw away that common, common temptation. Jesus says in chapter 3 of Revelation, those whom I love, I rebuke, I discipline, be zealous and repent. And look at the promises that he gives in 26 through 29. These, these are full on. These are cosmic These are huge promises. He says in verse 26 through 29, the one who conquers, meaning the one who overcomes the temptation to tolerate sin, the one who repents of your sexual immorality and returns to purity, the one who repents of worshipping false idols and returns to fidelity and faithfulness to Jesus Christ, our great Savior, whoever does that, the one who conquers... And who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. And I will give him the morning star. That language is so unfamiliar to New Testament Christians. Hope not you, but many of us. But it is taken straight out of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. If you just want to remember kingly rule of Jesus Christ in the Psalms. You just want two, two Psalms that remind you of that. It's Psalm 2, Psalm 110. In Psalm 2, verses 7 to 9, as we picture Jesus prophetically seen as being given the throne, he uses this language. Now, I'll read it. You look at Revelation language, verse 26 and 7. Here's what it says in Psalm 2, verse 7 and 9. He says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. That's the promises that Jesus then receives and then turns to the church and says, you stay faithful, you remain Conquering, you get these same promises. Ruling with me, reigning with me, receiving the nations, crushing those things that stand. Caesar, he's just a big old pot. We'll smash him with Christ's rod of iron. He will crumble. The Christian empire, the spiritual kingdom will continue to grow. They'll learn about Caesar in history books. They'll learn about Jesus as the king of the world. And then in Psalm 110, 
He says in verse 1, The Lord says to me, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We've just heard in Revelation, Jesus saying, you'll sit with me just like I sat with my father. Verse 5 and 6 of Psalm 110 says, The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter heads over the wide earth. Heads could otherwise be translated as chiefs. He'll he'll shatter chiefs over the wide earth. See the same language coming through? Jesus and his kingly rule, Jesus was was God the Son, eternal person, divine attributes, God. And he came into the world of sinful rebels, took on a, a body and a nature like ours, so that he could live the life that we were not able to live, that we didn't want to live, and that we enjoyed not living, that we were going to go to hell forever for living. He came in and then, and then he lived the life we should have lived and didn't live. And then he went to the cross and voluntarily submitted himself for the Father to give to him our sin. He was then punished with that sin, treated as if he had committed that sin. That's the gospel. The great exchange is that Jesus was punished the exact equivalent of what you would be punished for your sin because your name was transferred onto Jesus' record. Your sin was transferred into Jesus' account and he paid every drop of the wrath of God that needed to be extinguished for you to be forgiven. And then you were given the righteousness of Christ. So that, so that when you believe by faith, when you hear this, this preached, Jesus died for you, and you believe in that, you are imputed with Christ's righteousness. You turn from your sin, you believe in Christ, you are given his righteousness. But he rose, didn't he? Three days after he died, he rose to open up the kingdom of God. He rose to assure us there's eternal life after death, that you start now. He rose to show us that our own bodies will come back to life in resurrection. He arose and then the Father fulfilled Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. Said, come on, son, sit on your throne and rule. Ask the nations, I'll give them to you. And I'll make every enemy your footstool. Do you think Jesus avoided asking those prayers? No, he was commanded to ask. He asked. The Father said yes. He got the nations given to him. The question now is how does he exact and play out his sovereign rule and reign over the kingdom of God. How does he bring people into his spiritual kingdom? How does he rule and reign? What is his rod? What is his sword? It's the church. That's, why Jesus, that's what Jesus is saying here. He's the Davidic king who crushed the head of the serpent, who killed the seed of the snake, the snake himself, who killed death, He got his throne. He asked for the nations. He was given the promise that all of his enemies in history would be put under his feet. He's now bringing the nations to worship him through conversion, through gospel preachers. He's establishing churches in every tribe of the world. And he is doing it through the church who preaches the truth, disciplines error and sin, and brings in converts. Meaning, when the church conquers and does her work, Jesus is doing his kingly reign. That's what he's saying to them. Do you see what's at stake? There's not a version of the universe. There's not a possible reality where the church doesn't conquer by disciplining sin and teaching the gospel. Because if she fails to do that, Jesus' kingdom fails to grow. The father fails to fulfill his kingdom promises to the son. So be certified. The son will weed out sin. The blazing eyes, the burnished bronze, the rule of Jesus Christ will get himself a pure church. 
He will make sure that she is a pure bride and virgin given to him on the last day. Not perfect, but not tolerating sin. To the one who conquers, Jesus promises these great things. The one who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If this is all irrelevant, entirely confusing, and you don't really care to understand, boring, fanciful, it's cute that Jesus, the dead Nazarene, claims to have a kingdom. It's nice that the imprisoned apostle on Patmos thought he could whip up some inspiration to the dying Christians. That's cute. I have my life. I'll live my life. If that is you, you don't have an alternative truth. You're not saying no to God. You are condemning yourself. Jesus is resurrected and reigning. Jesus has poured out the the atonement that is needed. You are now running from him, the only one that you must come to. Psalm 2 ends with the command. Come to him. Take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. But it's wrath if you run away. Like a great crashing wave at the beach. You know, you're stuffed. If you run from it, it'll get you. You run to it. You jump under it while it still has the the mercy, while it still has the time of softness. There is time to jump under the great wave of wrath of God in Jesus Christ. But when he crashes down, your time is sealed and judgment comes. Believe today in the merciful Savior who died for your sins and offers you entry into the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father God, it is not for us to pick and choose which parts of the Bible we, we identify ourselves with, with, which parts we like, which parts we avoid, which parts we think are helpful and some not so winsome. We simply know, Lord God, that Jesus is that incarnate word and he manifests himself. He, he incarnates all of this, the wrath of God against sin, the, the desire of God for the holiness of his name and his own reputation and the mercy and love and grace that meets all who turn from their sin and repentance and hold fast to Christ by faith. I pray, Lord God, that both the kindness and the severity of our triune, infinite, the only true living God, I pray that those things would be real to us, would be real in our lives as we consider how we go about our daily life, our secret life, our public life, our life at work, among the family, Father God, would would the lessons of the word that you have spoken go with us this week and inform how we live. I pray, Lord God, that those who are hiding sin, whether they call themselves Christians or not, those who are living in sin that is hidden and that is unrepentant, that they are grasping onto in order to try and receive as much blessing from it, trying to to squeeze out of it all the the pleasure that they can get. Lord, I pray that you would turn whatever pleasure they are receiving from sin, would you turn it bitter in their mouth? maybe through being found out, maybe through simply having their eyes open to the disgust. Let them see their sin in a small measure, the way that you see their sin. Let it be bitter to them. Let it be despised to them. May zero pleasure be able to be sought from this filthy practice. I pray, Lord God, that each of us would believe you when you say, blessed are those who take refuge in you. You're not not baiting a sin in order to punish us, but if we come to you and we take refuge in you, there is only blessing full and final, complete, eternal, beautiful, gracious, merciful, loving blessing for all who turn to you by faith. I pray, Lord God, that you would save souls tonight. You would grow this church and keep us steadfast on the truth as it ought to be believed and on the truth as it ought to be obeyed. We love you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen.